Episode 48, Hey Love Podcast. They knew I was in the service and all that, but they didn't know where I had been yes. and what I had witnessed until 40 years later. And then uh, uh, I was encouraged to go on and tell the whole story. Welcome to Hey Love, engaging you, the reflective woman, in soul care, spirituality, and social spaces through the grid of God's grace. Here, it's all about relationships. Hey love, welcome to the show. Hope you were surrounded by people that you love over Thanksgiving that it sparked a habit of giving thanks all year long. I'm your host, Carthy Masters, and last week while we were hearing from our dear friend Gordon Kennedy, I told you that we would get to talk to one of his mentors. Well, here he is. Jimmy Gentry. He's one of our biggest hometown heroes and one person for whom I am truly thankful. If you live anywhere in the vicinity, you've heard of Gentry's Farm. Maybe you've been through the pumpkin patch or taken the hayride through the cow pastures. Hordes of people come here from miles around, especially this time of the year, to visit this sweet little gem just outside of Nashville. I say little, but it's about 400 acres of land. It's sort of an institution around here. They have camps in the summer and all sorts of activities in the fall. For years, I took the kids. I can't count how many field trips we took all through grade school. And now I still go out there regularly to pick up real beef. Grass-fed, no steroids, no antibiotics, no growth hormones, all grown right there on the farm. It's the best-tasting meat ever. Jimmy is a living legend here in our community. He's made such a solid impression through years of service to his country and our community. We named a road after him in Franklin. He's won bronze medals and countless other awards for all his contributions to society. He's always being recognized for some achievement. In World War II, he was one of the first foot soldiers to reach Dachau, a concentration camp Um, in southern Germany. He actually got to be a part of liberating the prisoners there. And he's one of the very few World War II veterans remaining with us, but his memory is sharp as a tack, which is great for this interviewer. Jimmy's an honored, decorated war hero, but he's also a humble, gentle, lovable, and tender as a teddy bear grandpa who has almost a childlike quality to him. He's lived through the horrors of war, but says that his favorite room in his house is the tree swing in his front yard. And he still tears up when he talks about his wife of 60 years, Rebecca. They had known each other since grade school. It's such a sweet, romantic love story. He'll tell us all about growing up during the Depression in a house full of kids. Jimmy tears up there, too, in the interview when he's talking about his mom in one part, and I did, too. So some of that was edited out because it was a little inaudible. I'm just going to read you what he says. There's something so special about a mother-son bond, you know. If you're a mom or you long to be one, you will appreciate this. Just imagine your own son as an 18-year-old hunkering down in some foxhole on some battlefield somewhere. This is what a great war hero has to say about his own hero, his mama. I still think about my mama a lot, and she came to mind often while I was away at war. She was the greatest influence on me. 
I think of her, always serving, always doing. To think she raised all of us children during the Great Depression and through a war with no income. She's the one who held that family together. She taught us everything we know. She took care of all of us so well. I really can't say enough about my mom. I have the utmost respect for her. Jimmy remembers how she taught all the gentry kids to be considerate and kind, always enforcing one rule, never eat the last roll. One day after dinner, little Jimmy watched as his mom took the last roll and a small plate of food to a hobo who was waiting at the back door, and he finally understood why they were always told to leave the last roll. You're going to love Jimmy's southern drawl. There are moments during this interview I think he's saying one thing and I find out later he's actually saying something else. Every time he said OC, for instance, I was like, what is that? Where's OC? And I came to find out every time he was saying OC, he was really saying overseas. I felt a little hesitant to ask Jimmy some of my usual questions. I mean, it's one thing to ask a 30-something woman what she wants a close friend to say at her funeral. But it's another thing altogether to pose that question to a man in his 90s. But after much prayer, I did ask the question, and his answer is golden. But I still hope that it doesn't come across insensitive. I feel like I'm in the presence of greatness whenever I'm around this man. So grab a cup of something hot and yummy, curl up on a comfy chair, and give this a listen. I know you're going to love Jimmy Gentry. Tell me about your childhood, maybe the story of a fond memory, growing up in the Depression. You got it right. Growing up in the Depression, uh, when we didn't have anything, but didn't anybody else have anything either, so we didn't know there was anything any better. And guess what? We were happy. Yes. Uh, had eight brothers and sisters, and my daddy died when I'm 12 years old, and uh, I couldn't pay enough tribute to my mother for doing that, how she got through all of that. But when he passed away, uh, uh, she just took over. So I have the highest regard for my mother. And were you the oldest son? What, uh, the oldest son was one, William, I have to go by the names. Dan was the next in line. He's still there. And David, my other brother, myself, Bobby, all of us, <laughs> and the sister, all of us were still at the family. And she, she raised us during the Great Depression without, uh, without a daddy. And without welfare. Well, that's right, without welfare. You're exactly <laughs> that right. That was pre-welfare. Yes. Uh, tell me, Jimmy, did, did would you say that your siblings were your best friends, or did you have a close friend? Oh, I had a close friend, uh, yeah. We, my best friend was was a, a, a young boy, same age as me, Huddy Alexander. Mm-hmm. And Huddy had it, what they call at that time infantile paralysis, which oh. is really polio. They didn't know, didn't use the word then, uh-huh. and so he he came down with that and got to the place that he could barely walk. Other than that, he was good. His mind, all that was good. So he was my best friend. We would uh, want to go fishing, but he couldn't walk. Oh. So I just put him on my back and wow. carry him wow. a mile on my back to the fishing hole where we fish. Uh, or go swimming or something like that. And then I'd put him on my back and bring him back home. Unbelievable. That was Huddy Alexander. Uh, he's just a great guy. I couldn't, I couldn't think of a better friend than he was. <laughs> who was one man who shaped your character? 
one man. I'd give that credit to Mr. W.C. Yates. He was my, not only my neighbor when I lived out a little in the edge of the, out in the country, but he was also my football coach in high school. And so after my daddy died, I looked up to him as my daddy, really. And so he, I give him credit for that. I could, he could do no wrong. I want to be just like Mr. W.C. Yates. But anyway, he, he was the one that I put up there ahead of everybody else uh, after my daddy died. And what was he like, and what did you admire about him? Well, he, he was a, a good Christian man. Uh, he was the kind of guy that would get up every morning and milk the cows, and, and then he'd go on to work. And uh, I just appreciated the way he lived his life. And then he became, when he, when he went to work, he went to the school to teach. And then when I got into his classes and, and played football for him, I got even closer to him then. Mm-hmm. And so I just picked him out of, I want to be like Mr. Yates. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you did coach football. Yes, it yeah. turned out that way too, yes. And that's something. Uh-huh. He had me involved in leadership for the other players on the team. And in fact, I eventually became captain of the team and that sort of thing, but it was because of him that I wanted to be a leader and he was a leader to me and then I was a leader to the other, to the rest of them. And you're still a leader. You're a pillar of our community, even today. Can you tell us what is your favorite Bible story or Bible study of all time? Well, I don't know as I can pick out a favorite story. Uh, I read the Bible every night before I go to sleep. I've done that all my life. I just read and read and read. And so I see it all, but the sacrifice of Christ yes. stands out above everything else. Yes. And the type of person that he was, yeah. the, the, I could even say the model that he was, uh, and it and it makes people, it makes me want to be as much like him as I possibly can, yeah. in the, even in this modern time and days. And so it just made such an impression on me as I read it. And I, I know the story already, but I read it and read it and read it. <laughs> and I'll read it again tonight. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you see, so you see the Bible as sort of one seamless story. Right. With Jesus as the center. And, you know, the Gospels, the story of Jesus is really what drew me to. Even while I was a Hindu, I felt like I knew there was another God out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. This other unknown God named Jesus. Yeah. But I remember feeling so drawn to the person of Jesus. And that was the beauty mm-hmm. of the difference between Christianity and just every other religion of the planet. Is that all those religions are man reaching up to God. And Christianity is God reaching down, down to man, to, down to man through Jesus. It was such a drastic difference. Well, I don't. I'll just tell you this. As I said, I was raised right here in Franklin. I went to Sunday school and I went to church and I studied this and did that. But I still just did that. I really wasn't really into it like I should. But the morning or really the night is still dark. This is World War II, and uh, we are going into combat for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I remember the guy comes up, and we was in this little French village, and he says, Captain said, fall out. That means come on down. We were in a room upstairs. Mm-hmm. It was cold. We go down, and they put us in the back of a two-and-a-half-ton truck, and we just packed in there, and we're going into combat for the first time. Mm. You could, it was so quiet that you'd hear everybody breathing. Mm. We knew where we were going, but we didn't know what it was really like. Nobody was saying anything. And then I realized something. I didn't have but one place to go. Mm. I went to God, and I prayed right there that night mm. going into combat. And I heard another man close by me mumble. I think he was praying too. Mm. And he was the kind of a guy that you wouldn't thought would pray, but he was mumbling also. So there's a time, I suppose, what I'm trying to say, that you're in one's life, somewhere along there, that you have to find him. Yes. And I'd been to Sunday school and the church and all that all my life, but when I put under the fear of death like that, not knowing what was out there, I just had one place to go. As so I went to God and I prayed that night. Yes. And then about uh, six months later when the war ended, on the Salzak River, going into Czechoslovakia, the word came that the Germans had surrendered. Mm. And I went down into a field nearby, and I got down on my knees, mm. and I prayed, thank you, God, for taking care of me. He did. Mm-hmm. You had mm-hmm. some near-death mm-hmm. experiences. Mm-hmm. Didn't you get shot really close to your eye at one point? On oh, my left eye, right there. And it hit your <laughs> helmet? Hit my helmet. And it came at an angle like this. If it had come, it, I would have been dead. It came at an angle like this. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and bullets pop when they go by your ear. They were popping all around my ear. I couldn't get away from them. <laughs> Unbelievable. And yeah. how did you get away that time? I just, when it hit, I was down on my knees anyway, trying to hide behind a tree. I just fell instinctively when it hit. Bam. And I realized then that they quit shooting at me. So they, they thought, thought you were they dead. They thought they did. So I just lay still. And I said, oh, they quit. So I just laid still. Wow. <laughs> Until he got that was you it. out of there. I just, amazing. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think that way. I said, oh, I think I'm going to play dead when I hit. And I said, hey, they're not shooting anymore. I'm just going to be still. And I'm still alive. Yeah. <laughs> wow. In fact, the guys that was behind me, old 20, 30 yard back, when they came up afterwards, they started turning me over. They said, hey, he's alive. They oh, thought I was dead, too. Wow. <laughs> That was in Wurzburg, Germany. What a memory. <laughs> I'm so glad you have such a sharp memory. Well, I do. Uh, I'm not very smart, I know that, but, <laughs> but my memory's good. I can go way back. What a gift. Mm-hmm. You've seen so much, Jimmy. Describe that Sunday morning, December 7, 1941. I can tell you where I was standing. I can tell who was there, what position I was in. I was in White's Drugstore on Main Street in Franklin to see on Sundays, everything's closed in those days except one drugstore. It was, Franklin had three drugstores, and this particular Sunday, it was time for White's Drugstore to be open. The other two were closed. And I had been to Sunday school, and we had a little break between Sunday school and church service. So we went around the corner, just one building around on Main Street in Franklin, 
and uh, got a coke and was standing around talking when somebody behind the counter, and it wasn't somebody, David Cook is his name, and David said, be quiet, be quiet, and got our attention, and he turned the radio up, and we heard for the first time that the Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. Mm. We put our unfinished cokes down, didn't say a word to each, each other, and walked out of the drugstore without saying a word and went back around to the church to let them know what we just heard. Mm. That was December the 7th, 1941. So you all made your way to sign up right away. Well, no, I was too young. Oh. I was 16. Okay. But my brother did, and he everybody else, 17. my brother, older than me, he's just still 17, was about ready to turn 18. Yeah. So he goes down and tries to join. They won't take him. And uh, Mr. Lanier was in charge at that time, and so... My brother David went down and tried to go, and Mr. Lanier said, David, you're too young. You can't go yet. And so he'd go down every day and try to go. So it's five points in Franklin right now where that rock fence is. Yeah. And so finally, he, one day David went down to try to go, and he said, David, I'm tired of you doing this. Take these papers home. Get your mother <laughs> to sign them. And he ran up. We, lived, we moved into town after my daddy died. He ran up the street and got my mother to sign the papers then brought him back and gave him to Mr. Lee and got on the bus. That's the last time we saw our brother. Oh, mm-hmm. heartbreaking. So your mother gave special permission since he was underage. She, she, she signed the papers that he, he could go on oh. and join if he wanted to. Were there many soldiers that were underage like that? Yeah, there were several that did that, several. It was 16, 17-year-old, and sometimes they wouldn't tell the truth of their age just to get in. They wanted to serve their country Mm -hmm, so badly. mm -hmm. Well, Jimmy, you know, um, I have to thank you on a personal note because my dad was growing up a very young village boy in in the southernmost tip of India, a village named Mailati, and they were following the war, listening to the radio. Yeah. And... The response of the young Americans like you and your brother and your friends, 13 boys from Franklin, Tennessee, my hometown, your response as what is called the greatest generation is what drew people like my father to immigrate here. (laughs) And he became an immigrant, um, brought his whole family here. He was so enthralled with the spirit that he saw. (laughs) Mm-hmm. among your generation. And so I just want to thank you for your service and your contribution to the world and how that affected me personally. Good. I will never make up for that debt. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yes. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, when did you first know that you were in need of grace? Your conversion story. When did Jesus first capture oh, your Oh, that, that night. That we were in the back of that truck. Yeah. That's it. I realized then I had been, you know, played football and I was the captain of the team and I could make the team and I could do this and I could do that and I could hunt and I could fish. I could do everything. And then I realized then that I wasn't it. You're not the stuff. I'm not not what I thought I was. Mm -hmm. I need help. Mm -hmm. And that's when I said, "Uh uh-oh, I got to go somewhere else. So was that, you'd say, the day that you got saved mm-hmm. in the back mm-hmm. of that truck? That right there in that back of that truck. Yes. I said, I need help. I yes. can't do this by myself. Yes. 
I remember reading in a history book when I was a kid, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Even a prayer said in desperation on a deathbed at the last second of somebody's life. The beauty of this is it'll still take, as I heard one preacher put it. All it takes is a simple, help me, Lord Jesus, I need you, and you're in. He makes it so uncomplicated for us. To just acknowledge your need for him is enough. He forgives us and gives us security and assurance and peace that surpasses all understanding. An eternal life, which starts right now, today. Like it says in Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And when you look at somebody like Jimmy Gentry, you see a man who oozes with gratitude. And out of that grateful heart, he lives in a way, he lives in such a way that is not self-righteous, but is just so pure and beautiful. It does have a certain glow about it. He shines. He shines Jesus. He also finds it hard to take on the role of victim. Here's more. Can you tell us a time when you had to forgive someone? You know, that I, you, they gave me, I guess, this slip of paper here. Yes. And, and it's number six. Yes, sir. And I don't know how to answer that. Well, I was thinking about uh, you lost well, your Well, what brother. I'm saying, what I'm reading, I'm saying that is, I don't think I've had anybody to do something to me that I to forgive. I can't remember being mistreated mm. by anybody. I'm sure I was, but I didn't was not aware of it. I don't want to make myself clear or not. Yeah. Uh, I ha- my life has been, if, if I had to qualify it, I say it's been good. Mm. Uh, well, I was thinking about when you lost your brother. Did you feel like you were resentful ab- about the? shooting of your brother or the loss of your brother, did you have to forgive the person who shot your brother? Well, after I had the experience that I had in the war myself, seeing death around me within, uh, you see, our dog tags I had a notch in it. Mm-hmm. And that notch, when you lose a friend or whatever, they take the notch, don't take it off the chain, it's around your neck. And you t- don't take it off the chain. You take that dog tag where the notch is and put it between the two incisors of teeth. Oh, I t- wow. And tap it in. I had to do that to Sergeant Randy McDavid from South Carolina. Mm. Put a tag in his mouth. Mm. He's dead. He was talking to me when he got killed. Oh, Lord. So he's this close to me when he dies. I'm talking to him when he dies. And then I, I see, I look at it a whole lot differently then. Mm-hmm. That's war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and war is not good. No. War is not good. No. Uh, we had to. We had to do that, I suppose. And I feel like we just had to. Hitler would have taken the world over. Yes. But uh, now I realize what a great country we have. Anyway, uh, I, 
I don't want to make myself clear or not, but I didn't think that way at, at the time. Uh, but I had I had to find myself there with death here, here, and near death. And I guess it's what I'm trying to say is I've been blessed. Yes. Now, so when you, I say that, I've had bullets that close to my head. Yeah. They pop, mm-hmm. popping all around. Mm-hmm. Why didn't one of them hit me and kill me? And why did they kill this man and and this one, but not me? Mm-hmm. And so I think about that. They had families. They had families. Mm-hmm. I had family. Here I am. So I feel like I owe something to the good Lord for what happened to me. I'm, I survived. And then when I see that concentration camp and those pitiful, pitiful, pitiful mm-hmm. people not even knowing who they were, never heard the word concentration camp before in my life. I didn't have any idea what I was seeing. Who are these people? Why do they look like that? Mm-hmm. They're standing there dead. And I, I didn't understand any of that. I do now a lot, but I didn't then. Mm-hmm. So I suppose what I'm saying is God has different ways of reaching people. Mm-hmm. And that reached me that day when we got to that camp. We went by a ship overseas mm-hmm. to England. Then the LST, that's the one that left front down like that, oh, to yeah. England. A little landing craft that when you pull up to the shore, you let it down, there's, there it is. So when you let it down, there's France. And mm. We waited. So I'm doing it. Here's how fast we did it. We went across the ocean to England, got on the LST, went across the English Channel, let it down, there's France. And then we walked. Started walking. I walked so, from La Havre, France, to the Czechoslovakian border. Oh my! All of us did because that's where the war was fought across north of Paris. We didn't go into Paris until after the war. North of Paris, and then across the Rhine River at Worms, and uh, I could name all of them. But it's in Strasbourg, Saarbrücken, and Würzburg, where I got hit. Anyway, and all the way into the Czechoslovakian border. And but it took six mm. months for us to do that. Wow. To do what I just said, go from there across to Czechoslovakia more. What do you hope a friend might say at your funeral someday? Well, uh, I don't know if I can word this correctly or not. Uh, I would hope that uh, I can be remembered as being a light. In other words, I don't mean glowing or anything like that, but <laughs> as I go along through my life, I hope that I'm a light that people can see a little glow from that person yes. and would want to follow him. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, that's a very appropriate way of uh-huh. describing it. Yeah, uh, so they, they can see the light, yes. and I want to go with him. And the light, the resource of that light from within is from another place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, right. you know, that's very evident in your whole life, is mm-hmm. evident of that light. And the fact that you're telling your stories now, that helps us to see that light yeah. and really embrace that light. Well, I went for 40 years without telling all the story. Yeah. 
that was too horrible to remember because of where I was. And yes. I, no one knew I was, they knew I was in the service and all that, but they didn't know where I had been yes. and what I had witnessed and saw and smelled and touched oh, uh, until 40 years later. And then uh, the, I was encouraged to go on and tell the whole story. I know that was, that had to take a lot of courage, but I'm so grateful mm-hmm. that you started mm-hmm. talking about it. And I wonder, Jimmy, um, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of processing our feelings. And, you know, you've seen a lot of veterans coming back from the Gulf War and Mm -hmm. Vietnam and Korea, I believe, where they they experience post-traumatic stress disorder to such a degree that we didn't see or hear about nearly as much with the World War II veterans. Would you say that's right? Yeah, that's right. And would you say that it has a lot to do with the fact that the World War II, or up until World War II, we had transported our boys back home on a ship, and they had a lot more time to process and talk about the nightmarish reality mm-hmm. they lived through. And when we started, you know, flying them home, I guess it was Vietnam, when we started flying them home, they didn't have the time to process all that and talk about it. And they would have nightmares. I think you're right. I think you're right. So I think that makes a huge difference. I do too. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. So I'm so grateful because, and especially when I was reading you through your book, An American Life, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I was able to process it in a different way it was it was good for me to have read it first before watching mm-hmm. even the documentary or, or watching many world war ii movies mm-hmm. i had seen saving private ryan many years ago but mm-hmm. but now i feel like after having read your book and processing it mm-hmm. out loud with my husband in my in my imagination first and then with my husband out loud i feel like i could see even scenes like those first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan mm-hmm. and have a context for it. Mm-hmm. So I, all that to say, thank you. I'm, right. I'm so grateful. What would you tell the 25-year-old version of yourself? Well, I think um, the word love, loving one another. Yes. Uh, there are people that I think back now... I didn't. I didn't treat them quite right mm. when I think back, because they were this way or that way. I think we need to learn to love one another. We use the word love freely sometimes, but mm. I began to understand it more and more when I see people that I maybe they're not dressed like I think they should be, or maybe they're saying things they shouldn't say. I should love them also, because mm. they're just not like me. No, <laughs> so humble. Lot. That's good. I wonder if you can tell me, as you've seen so many generations of men and women, can you tell me, have you seen a difference in the way women are doing relationships? Oh, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I need need to say this anyway. Yeah. Two people in my life, my mother and my wife, boy my mother was unbelievable raising all these children without her husband during the great depression how did she do it she taught herself to read and write Mm. 
I've got some letters at home now that she wrote me while I was in the overseas during the war, and I saved those. I wouldn't take anything for them because mm. she never went to school a day in her life. She lived in that era, mm. and she lived to be 96 years old. And so I see her as a true mother. She didn't work outside. She didn't have a, a job here and then run home and buy something on the way home, take it home. She cooked. She did it all. Yes. And I miss that, and I, I miss that for the people. Yes. So many of them, they never see their mother until late evening of the night, and then there's time to go to bed and things like that. Yeah. So I don't know what I'm asking you a question. I, I'm sorry that it's not like that, but on the other hand, I understand it, how the life we live now. Yeah. It's, it's just that way. So... Uh, that that's it, and then uh, the other person, the other two, my mother and my wife. The sixty-four years that we, our relationship, for sixty-four years, and married for sixty of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> was unbelievable. And I, I have to give her credit; she was a very popular girl. Uh, I never had him had a date. I didn't go. I, I, was, I was too scared to talk to a girl. I'd hide from them. But she was very popular, and I could see her up around town, you know, beautiful girl. And then finally, it all it's all done up there. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. She asked me to take her to the junior-senior prom. I couldn't oh. dance. I didn't know anything about dancing. I never been to a prom. I didn't know what a prom was. How sweet. <laughs> and she asked me, and that's how it all started. And I wouldn't swap her for anything after that. And uh, I thank God for that. I don't know where you know where I live. Oh, yes. We go to your farm every week for beef. Okay. <laughs> the that best beef her, in that town. That was hers, not mine. <laughs> See? That that's, how, that's how I ended up there is because of her. And across the road, West Haven was part of that farm. Yeah. And her sister got that side. She sold it. Okay. My wife got our side, and it's just like it was. The house I live in now, I refer to it as Rebecca's. That's her name. And we're going to leave it like it is. We're not going to build houses on the subdivisions or anything. We're going to leave the farm like it is because of her. I love driving over that little bridge and seeing that little pond and then all yeah. the cows. They kind of know where to go I all by themselves. I just sit and park and watch them sometimes. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I'm how glad those cows out. know where to go more than we do? I don't well, know. Before this day's over, I'll be in the golf cart and I'll go out through that, be in the dog, and I just go all over that just farm. Awesome. I've been able, I can do it blindfolded, but. Uh. I just love to do it. And I look across and see West Haven over there. I'd whole lot rather be over here. <laughs> and some guy, one day, uh, it was, a helicopter came over one day. Uh-huh. And he kept circling. And circling. I thought, maybe he's having engine trouble or something. And, he, and I was in the golf cart then. I went out into the field, and he came down. And he got out and had a three-piece suit on. I said, who in the world? What's he doing? He said, do you own this farm? I said, yes. Yeah. said, will you set it? I said, <laughs> No, I won't say that. He said, I don't blame you. He got back in. He wanted to buy the property. <laughs> I don't blame you, he said. <laughs> he, said he, he, he said to me, he said, I don't blame you. He got back in the left. <laughs> so we're going to keep it. We're going to keep it just like it is. Now, our dear friend Gordon is the one who brought you over here. I'm mm-hmm. going to get to take you home Okay. to the farm. But I wonder if you can tell me, Gordon wrote a, a song around a story that you told him about your wife's perfume. Tout moi. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? 
always me. Tous moi in French means always me. And did you buy her that bottle? That's what I bought. Yeah, yeah, while I was overseas, I'd make sure that my mother bought her tous moi mm-hmm. uh, to give it to her while I was gone. it affect you when you shared this story about releasing the prisoners being part of that triumphant day at Dachau and you've had university students raise their hands and say I don't think this really happened I can see him now <laughs> the big audience and he's just to my right in the front row by where your refrigerator is at. Yeah. he's the one that stood up and said don't you think what you saw might have been a hoax? It really didn't happen. Like, I just got through telling him what I had seen and smelled and touched. Eyewitness. Yeah. Yeah, I was there. That's how I answered him. I said, well, I was there. I saw it happen. What more can you say? I know. it. I, I just got through telling my story, and then yeah. he stands up and says that he was so anti that he was trying to cut it down some way if he could. Yeah. And, it's but the, just crazy. But, but it didn't work because when I said that, I said, I saw it, and I smelled it, and I touched it. The audience clapped. <gasps> Yay! Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> they put him down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His argument did not hold much water. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That, was, that was a good one. Yeah. I, I didn't know. You've read this somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> I've done my homework. Yes, sir. <laughs> when is the last time you felt joy from head to toe? Oh, gosh. There's no question I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Within the last year, I have great grandbabies now. Guess what? They're the prettiest, smartest, and cutest in the whole world. <laughs> and if I didn't say that, something's wrong with me. <laughs> I just love them to death. Uh, just as soon as I see them, I say, come here, come here. Oh, no. that's, that's the best joy I'm having right now. See, I look at those precious little kids, and they just I just love them to death. And what do they call you? They call me grand, granddaddy. Oh. <laughs> Jimmy, what are you working on next? Well... As I said, I I hope I can keep my light shining. Yes. What I want to do next, I really want to sort of slow down, and I am slowing down, but I want to be able to still take the word, quote, my word, supporting the good Lord, still carry it with me wherever I go. I still want to be, quote, quote the light for people to see. He has lived this life, and he's still here. And... There's more to it than what I'm trying to say to you. I've never had a cigarette in my mouth in my life. I've never touched a drink of alcohol in my life. I've never used one word of profanity in my life. And I've heard it all. Mm-hmm. And I want to try to keep going like that. I want to shine mm-hmm. for the good Lord. And you are doing a fine job. Well, I don't know about that, but that's, that's, that's my goal is to keep going, keep going. So your book is called An American Life. Your documentary is called An American Adventure. Uh-huh. Uh, what I did with the book, I was, see, I taught school for so long yes. that uh, 
I taught biology 60 years, I guess. But anyway, uh, what I would do is I would try to tell them a story with what I wanted to get point across in my story. Yeah. And they say, yeah, tell us another story. <laughs> They've already learned what I want them to learn, you see. And that when I did that with some of my students, in fact, there's one particular student came to me, and he's sort of a writer. He said, Coach, you've got to write your stories down. Oh. And I said, well, I can't write. He said, yeah, you can. I said, no, I can't. I argued with him. He said, I'll tell you what, you just tell the story, yes. and I'll make sure this written down. And we, re- we recorded it first. We recorded everything, and then he took it and went really? through it. Really? Mm-hmm. And that's what turned out to be in American that's Life? How, uh-huh, that's how I did American Life. Wow. And he's the one that put it together, Paul Clements. And so that's how I did that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jimmy, I can't thank you enough for oh, your time. Oh, you're so welcome. This you're so welcome. This is such a delight. Yeah. Thank it, you. It, I did that here. Um, I think I got to hear to see if it's, I made a little note. One of them here that you didn't ask is not important. Oh, well, what yeah, do you go What ahead. do you do for play? I sketch. I bet I've got That's 500 right. sketches right now. I forgot that I you I just pick up a pencil and sketch this. Well, I remember when I was looking through your book, I was so struck by how well you sketched Franklin yeah. and all your surroundings. Well, I've got hundreds and hundreds of sketches now, and I oh. give them away to the, we have those camps, and I give them to the campers that, they're scattered all over the United States. <laughs> that all is amazing. That I can do that. I put it this way. I can't sing. I can't dance. I'm very poor in math, but I can <laughs> sketch. Oh, can't you just picture some of those scenes that he describes? Before we started recording, he was telling me that on his way over to Europe back in the 1940s, he looked around on his way to war at the vast ocean and just knew there has to be a God. He's the one responsible for creating all this beauty. I so appreciate the way he describes his moment on the back of that truck, becoming a Christian. Even though he had attended Sunday school all his life, that moment, that was when he made a decision for Christ, a clear choice to say yes to Jesus' invitation. He was so aware of his humanity and his need. It humbled him. He saw that he needed help from a source outside of himself. And did you love that Jimmy really couldn't name a time that he had to forgive somebody else? There's no bitterness or guile here in this man, even after all he's witnessed. Oh, to have some of that perspective, right? Next week on December 7th, President Roosevelt deemed it the day that will live in infamy. Pause for a moment. December 7th. Pray for the families who lost loved ones during that attack 76 years ago on Pearl Harbor. Pray for the ones who signed up to fight. Pray for the survivors of World War II. As of today, out of the 16 million who served, there are about half a million left. I feel like I thanked Jimmy a dozen times during this interview for finally deciding to share his story and not keep it all inside. It was actually a Holocaust survivor who talked him into sharing it. I devoured his book. You need to read it, too. And the reason I'm so grateful for this work that he's done is I know how imperative it is. If we don't want history to repeat itself, we need to know what happened in the past. 
that's a huge way that we can help the next generations to come. So for that reason, I'm going to challenge you to read a good book about World War II over Christmas break. Of course, Jimmy Gentry's book is going to be on that short list. I'll link to some good movies, too. Well, Jimmy is such a romantic, isn't he? I loved the story about him and his wife. Tujamuai? I can't remember it. That's the name of the perfume that Jimmy bought his wife and made sure she was in full supply of. Tujamuai? Wait, what was it? I thought it was so cute at the end when he reminds me of a question I'd left out by accident. Oh, he wanted to share what he does for play. I love that. When you hear Jimmy's voice crack as he's acknowledging the greatness of his mama, giving her all sorts of props and appreciation for all she did for his family, isn't that just so touching? It's a tribute. What a blessing. It's like the Proverbs 31 woman where the children rise and call their mama blessed. Whether they say it or not, they're in there. And someday they're going to appreciate you. To all of you moms out there, bravo for a good job, a job well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what every mother dreams of? I know you may yell now and then and feel guilty for being gone so much or, you know, for whatever reason, feel like you're not a good mom. I feel that way all the time. But I would bet good money your kids don't feel that way. Just be there for them, present, in the moment. That's huge. Wanted to let you know that's our sweet friend Ben Cooper you've been hearing throughout this episode. He's the one on piano and vocals, and he co-wrote the music to Toujours Moi with his mentor friend, Gordon Kennedy. Thanks, guys. Jimmy's charity of choice is WoundedWarriorProject.org. Go check out their website. They have a big group of warriors that come out to the farm every year. It's a highlight for all. Well, love, that's it for me today. I got to get out to the farm. It's beef pickup day. And if you're anywhere in the Franklin, Tennessee area, come and visit Gentry's Farm. Till next time. Bye, love. My thanks to the heroic, handsome, most talented rock star, keyboard player, producer, engineer extraordinaire, and my best friend, Blair Masters, for setting it all to music. And thank you for joining us. Come on back, and we'll talk more about how you can find your happy by living life more connected. I look at those precious little kids, and they just I just love them to death. And what do they call you? Well, they don't call me anything yet. Oh. They can't talk. <laughs>